Uh, my name is Callum, part of the leadership team here at Gateway. Uh, and this morning we are continuing our series looking at the church, um, by which we don't mean Gateway, um, or not just Gateway anywhere, but God's global church, all of his people. And uh, the topic I'm going to be talking about this morning is about the church being the dwelling place of God. So a lot of what has been said about this morning really feeds into what I'm talking about this morning, which is great. I love it when that happens. Um, So can I ask you just to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, um, if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, we have Bibles around, so you should go and grab one. Um, Mark chapter 11. I'm just going to pray quickly, and then I'm just going to read... um, Father, I thank you for what you're doing already here this morning, God. I thank you that you are here by your Spirit. God, and just as we open the Scriptures together, God, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak, Father? Would you take what is of value here and would you let it sit in our hearts, God? And what is of no value, Father, would you just burn it up, God? And through all of it, I pray, would you be glorified, Lord Jesus? Amen. So, um, we're just going to start with one verse this morning, but we're going to jump around the Bible a fair bit. Um, But for a bit of context, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem towards the end of his life, and it seems that pretty much the first thing he's done on walking into Jerusalem is head to the temple, walk into the temple courts, overturn the tables, and clear out a load of people, the um, money changers and the sellers. And then we get to the verse that we're going to begin with this morning, which is uh, Mark 11, verse 17, which says, My house, well, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, I have this photo of my granddad, Papa, as we called him up in our kitchen. It's of him holding me as a baby. Uh, and I know cute then, cute now. It's just God's grace on my life. Um, but we have this photo up in our kitchen. Papa died 11, 12 years ago now. Um, I was very fond of him. Uh, he was an important part of my life growing up. Um, I, have his, I have his Bible. Uh, I have a car that he used to have in his office on one of our bookshelves. I have his harmonica, his notes from his sermons. Um, he was an important part of my life, but I really like this photo of him and brings to mind a whole lot of good memories of the rude songs he used to sing to make us laugh, porridge and um, brown sugar we had when we stayed over at their house. It also brings to mind a lot of uh, sad memories as well, that when we found out he had dementia, when I realised the moment he knew, he, did, he no longer knew my name, uh, when I said goodbye to him at the hospital before he died. And uh, we show our kids these things, you know, the notes in his Bible, the car, um, the harmonica. We tell them stories about Papa. Um, we tell Eli that his middle name, Brian, is Papa's name. Um, poor kid. Um, <laughs> we felt so bad about giving him the middle name Brian that we actually gave him two middle names, and that is genuinely the reason. Um, but, <laughs> but all those things don't do justice to who Papa really was. And my kids will never really understand why he was so important to me because this side of eternity, they'll never get to meet him. And if you've ever been separated from somebody that you love, whether it's through death or distance or sin, 
you'll know that photos are adequate when the person's absent. But that's all they are. They are adequate. And there's no replacement for when that person is or was present. A photo is an imperfect image of something that's more true, more genuine, more real, more present. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is a bit like a photo. It's always been an imperfect image of something more true, something more present, which is Jesus himself. And in the incarnation, God himself becomes human. And at Pentecost, God poured his spirit out, poured himself out on all of his people. The Jerusalem temple was no longer needed because the Father, through the Spirit, has made us in Christ Jesus his temple. We don't need the photo anymore because we have the real thing. And Jesus quotes this short passage directly from Isaiah 56 about what his temple was always supposed to be like. A house of prayer. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the Jerusalem temple had failed at this task, but God had bought a truer tabernacle, a better temple that would be all it was intended to be. Christ Jesus and his body, the church, you and me. And because the church is now God's temple, and because this is a description of what the temple was always intended to look like, I think we can unpack three very simple and obvious points about what it means for us as the church to be God's temple, to be God's dwelling place by doing a little bit of a survey through a few passages in the New Testament. So point one is that the church is God's house. I told you they'd be simple and obvious. Um, Jesus says, my house will be called. As in, it's the place where he lives, right? That's what we do in houses, we live there. It's the place where God dwells. Gateway is not our church as elders. It's not Colin's church because he leads the team. It's God's. It belongs to God. He built it, he dwells in it, and one day he'll be the one to knock it down. And as leaders, that means that we want to follow the Spirit's leading in all that we do. We don't want to set our own agenda. We don't want to shape Gateway into our image. We want to be led by the Spirit in everything. Now, obviously, we don't always get this right. <laughs> don't always listen well. Don't always stay focused on the Spirit's leading, which is partly why there's a team of us, so we can challenge one another and hold one another accountable. But more than just a team of a few elders, in God's house lives God's family. We are brothers and sisters. We're to hold one another accountable, to spur one another on to love and good works. If we look at some of the, um, the verses on the graphic for this series, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are all priests, not just the leaders, not just some of us in the room. We are all priests. You are all priests in God's temple, which means we all have priestly duties. And we will come back to that in a minute. Next one, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We're all part of God's family. Christ's church. We all have our part to play. As Nigel said last week, God has prepared good works for each of us to walk into. We are his workmanship, his work 
of art. And we have to spur one another on into those unique things that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Romans 12. In Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. I belong to you. You belong to me. We belong to one another. And if you haven't clicked yet, that's part of the reason why we're running Belong in October, which I think there are still a few spaces left up, left to sign up for. But we are not just a random, disparate group of people who rock up three out of four Sundays a month. That's not who we are. I belong to you and you belong to me. We belong to one another. We as elders belong to you. We are here for you to serve you and to equip you and to release you into all that God has called you to do. Each member belongs to all the others. It's God's house. So you want to be led by him in all we do. And to help us do that, he has made us all priests and given us priestly duties. He's prepared good works for us to do. And he's given us each other to belong to. But the fact that it's God's house also means a few other things for us as well. It means we need to be careful about how we treat it. Let's look at the other verse up on the graphic, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, this verse comes in the midst of Paul writing to the church in Corinth because partly because there are divisions in the church about some who say they belong to Apollos and some who say they belong to Paul. And Paul writes to them and he says, you're acting in a human way. What is Apollos? What is Paul? God. Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Neither Paul or Apollos is anything but only God. And then he switches the metaphor from gardening to construction. And he says, be careful how you build on these foundations, because if you build badly and it gets burned up, you will suffer loss. And then we get to verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves, which is plural, you, us, we, me and you, are God's temple, which is singular. We, collectively, are being built into one temple, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. And then the very next verse, 17 If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, that's not a warning just to church leaders, but a warning to each one of us. The church is God's house, which means it's holy, and we need to treat it as such. And this is, just to be clear, this is not a leader's excuse to say, stop complaining, you're destroying God's house This is not that, complain away, Um, but it is a warning to do so with the intention of building well on those foundations, knowing that it's God's house, rather than doing so with the intention to tear down and to destroy. We're to value the church we're part of highly because it's God's house and it belongs to him. And look, it doesn't really matter what church you end up in. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, but you are never going to find the perfect church because you are going to be in it, um, which I quite like. (laughs) So to use Paul's words, what is gateway? What is pattern? What is high worth or discovery? Servants of God. God gives the growth. Neither gateway or any other local church is anything but only God. In fact, they are God's fellow workers. 
to just being plain for a moment, whether you end up belonging here at Gateway or belonging to another local church, for all of its faults, value the church you are in highly. And sure, I know that sometimes that will mean pointing out its faults. But value the church you're in highly because God dwells there and it's his house. One more passage just on this first point. And don't worry, my other points aren't quite as long as this one. Um, But not only are we to treat the church highly because it's God's house and it's holy, but we too are supposed to be holy. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, I won't touch on this too much because I think the plan says that Al's going to talk about holiness next week. Um, But hopefully you're following Paul's thoughts. Because we are God's house, we are to be holy. And in context, Paul's uh, talking to the Corinthians because they are in the midst of a, a, a city that is full of gods. In Corinth, there were large temples to Apollo, to Aphrodite, as well as to loads of other images and gods. And we might not be going to the temple of Apollo on a Friday and then gathering with the church on a Sunday morning. Uh, But let's not kid ourselves that we don't sometimes fall into worship of the gods of our age. Sex, money, power, comfort, the self. We are the temple of the living God. So we are called to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, as Paul says just a few verses later. So that's point one. The church is God's house. It's his temple, his dwelling place. And the second point of what it means to be the dwelling place of God is that we're to be a house of prayer. And just to make a slightly uh, trite point, he doesn't say a house of good Bible teaching or a house of joyful singing or a house of good community. Now, of course, the, of course, the church is called to all of those things, which is why we strive to do them. But the one thing that Jesus does say is a house of prayer. It's what the Jerusalem temple was graded on. And I think it's safe to say, therefore, that it's something the church ought to excel in. And, you know, I was talking to uh, Rob the other week, and uh, he was saying about how he was taught to understand that the preach is kind of the high point of the church's gathering on a Sunday. And he was relaying the story of uh, chatting to his Catholic friend, um, who was talking about how in, in the Catholic world, the Eucharist communion is the high point of their gathering, to which I give a hearty amen, but um, I wonder when I read this verse whether Jesus would say, actually, it's neither the preach or communion, it's prayer. We've said, just as Colin said earlier, we've said a number of times this month that we, um, we feel like we've grown lax in our prayer as a church, and so we're intentionally shifting how we do things. We are trying to be more intentional with our times of prayer before the Sunday gatherings, we're trying to pray together in these contexts as well. Um, We want to respond to the spirit in this and press into what Jesus has called us to be, which is not just the people who sometimes pray, but a house of prayer. And just for you personally, if you can be honest with yourself for a moment, 
What does your prayer life really look like? Being real with you, my prayer life over these last few months has been very up and down, which needs to shift in me, and it needs to shift in all of us who would say something similar if we are to truly be characterized as a house of prayer. I find uh, praying for things, intercessory prayer on my own, pretty hard work, if I'm honest. I pray for the thing that I need to pray for, and then I get to the end of that, and I'm like, okay, God, I've run out of words to pray the same thing again. Um, It's why I really like praying with other people. Because when I've run out of words, somebody else prays something, and it sparks something in me that I then want to pray for. And then somebody else says something, and it sparks something else in me. So if you find prayer hard work on your own, can I please encourage you genuinely to just try coming along to a prayer meeting, either on a Sunday morning or one of the ones that we'll put in the diary next month. Um, You might find it makes prayer a little bit easier for you. Let's just have a look at 1 Peter 2 again, starting this time in verse 4, which says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen in God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then jumping down to verse 9 again. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, each one of us living stones, are being built up into God's house. But not only are we the living stones, we're also the priests. What did priests do in the Old Testament? They facilitated temple worship, they read the Hebrew Bible, they served God's people, they acted as mediators between God and the Gentile world, they sacrificed, they prayed. What does this mean for us? I'd like to suggest um, three S's. Service is the first one. We serve one another as God's house whether it's through volunteering on a team or through praying for one another or through the practical outworking of community life, we serve one another as brothers and sisters. But we also serve the world around us through being the everyday disciples of Jesus, ambassadors of his kingdom in our workplace and our homes, with our friends and our families, and so on. So service, scripture, we love the Bible. We want to read it. We want to preach it. We want to meditate on it. We want to immerse ourselves in the story of scripture because it's God's story and it's our story and it all points to the one who saved us, Jesus. And then the third S, sacrifice. And this is what Peter tells us specifically in those verses that we are to do, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what does he mean by sacrifice? Well, I think he means Worship. Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
and pleasing to God because this is your true and proper worship. We're to offer our whole lives to God. It also includes singing. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It includes sharing communion. In 1 Corinthians, we read that communion joins us to our great high priest. It reminds us of the promises of the new covenant in Jesus, and it requires us to prepare ourselves to take the meal and to not do it in an unworthy manner, which sounds pretty much like a priestly task to me. And then Revelation 5 and 8 is the last thing. It means prayer. Those verses in Revelation describe our prayers as incense which rises before God. Psalm 141 says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Service, scripture, sacrifice, that is point two. The fact that we are the dwelling place of God means that we are a house of prayer. We are priests who are given priestly duties. And then the final point of what it means to be a dwelling place of God is that we are a house for all nations. Let's jump to Ephesians 2 just for a minute. I told you there are going to be a lot of verses. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, Paul in these verses explicitly ties together reconciliation and unity between Jewish and Gentile believers with the fact that we are all joined together into God's one church, God's temple, his house. Both Jewish and Gentile believers have a place in the kingdom. Both have a place at the king's table. Both are being formed into God's house. That's what Jesus is doing here in Mark 2 as he quotes Isaiah 56. Isaiah was talking about God's temple being a place for Gentiles to worship and not just for Jews. And it's why Jesus acts as he does, walking into the court of the Gentiles and overturning the tables there because it's the place where those who weren't Jewish could come and worship because that place had been turned into a marketplace, a place where those people were taken advantage of. It had become a den of robbers. It was hindering them from worshipping God as he had intended. Now, unless you are uh, Jewish here this morning, then we are all Gentiles. We are the ones that Jesus is speaking about. However, I also think there's a wider point here about reconciliation and unity between all people. So the word um, that Jesus uses for all nations, the word that he uses for nations there is the same word as Gentiles, and it's where we get our English word ethnicity from. We don't have the scenario of Jewish and Gentile believers um, coming together at Gateway. We might do one day, but at the moment it's not our primary situation. But we do have the scenario of an incredibly, beautifully diverse church. So if you are from another nation here this morning. Can I just ask you to be brave for a moment and just loudly shout out which nation you're from? It's going to require someone to be brave and be the first voice. India, Nigeria, 
Iran, Ghana, South Africa, Poland, Brazil, India, Hong Kong, Latvia, Pakistan, Canada. What was that one? Kenya. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Where else in the world do you get people from this many different nations gathered together in one room? Maybe a UN meeting. But, are they, <laughs> but at a UN meeting, they're not praying for one another. They're not singing together. They're not breaking bread. They're not figuring out how to do the hard work of laying down your preferences for one another. The church is unique in all the world, utterly unique. And it is because God is here by his spirit. And look, we realize that we have a long way to go on some of this stuff. But I just want to say again, clearly and publicly, that our desire is for Gateway to increasingly reflect the diversity of us as a church family. And as I said, it's a journey. You all have eyes. Even something as simple as the front of the room currently doesn't reflect what we look like as a family. But we have a journey to go on, and we want to go on it. And I know uh, there may be some here who are jaded by that journey. Um, I just want to apologize again and ask for your forgiveness. And um, we really do desire that Gateway reflects the diversity of God's kingdom. And I just want to ask, will you help us on that journey? Will you help show us the way? Will you help lead us at points, walk alongside us, challenge us? Our desire is to be a church that truly reflects being a house of prayer for all nations. We don't want a British church. We don't want a Nigerian or a Brazilian or a Kenyan church, which is not to speak ill of any other churches, by the way, just to be clear. A church like that may be more comfortable. It may require less of us. It may require less grace and less forgiveness and less patience. But it's not what we desire here for this church. We desire a church that reflects the multicultural diversity of the kingdom of God. You know, Paul says just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 2 that we are one new humanity in Christ. We've been made one in spite of all of our differences and our uniqueness. We're all living stones in God's one house. We're all priests in God's one temple. We're all sons and daughters in God's one family. In Galatians 3, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's not saying we're no longer male or female or British or Iranian or Nigerian. He's not saying we should discard our heritage or our ethnicity or our maleness and femaleness. What he is saying is that there's something greater than what makes us us, something greater than our identity that binds us together, Christ Jesus. And that in Christ Jesus, we are all equal. We are all of value. We are all sons and daughters of God. We are all heirs according to promise. The people of God are beautifully diverse, and we want to reflect that here at Gateway. Revelation 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there we go. 
To be the dwelling place of God means that we are his house, that we're a house of prayer, and that we're a house for all nations. Um, and I just want to invite us, just by finishing, I just want to invite us to respond again to the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that not too much of what I've said this morning comes as a surprise, that we are the dwelling place of God, that we collectively in Christ are his house. The God who flung the stars into space, who spoke all things into being, the God who's before all things and holds all things together, who alone is eternal, who dwells in unapproachable light, who even the angelic beings cover their eyes before as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. The God who descended upon Mount Sinai like a thunderstorm that the whole of Israel was terrified of. The God who descended into our world as a human baby, who healed, who loved, who set the demonized free, who invited the lowly and the least to his table, who died and was raised to life, who came upon his disciples as a rushing wind and as fire, the God who saved you and who saved me. That God dwells here amongst us, his church, his people, his family. That God has chosen to build us together into his temple, into his house. We don't need the photo anymore because we have the real thing. We have God's spirit in us, in us, dwelling in our midst. Now, please don't, please don't hear this as a criticism, but as we were singing last Sunday, I just looked around the room at one point. Um, I just felt this sense of sleepiness and lethargy in the room amongst us. Many of us were singing, but it was kind of, you know, arms by our side, very straight-jacketed, if that's a word. Um, and I realized that how we worship and we respond to God physically doesn't always reflect how we respond to God inwardly. Um, but I also realized that quite often it does. Um, and I felt prompted just to share what Matt from Highworth um, had talked about the night before at Go23 from uh, Romans 13 about now being the hour to wake from sleep. And I invited us just to respond to God. Um, and as I saw most of you in this room lift your hands in response to God, I was just overcome with emotion for a moment. Because my desire for us as a church is that we would be a people who are hungry for the presence of God. Who are hungry for the presence of God in our lives and as we gather together to sing, to worship and to break bread and to open the scriptures. Um, last summer, 2022, um, I had the privilege of going out to Burundi again um, and on a rest day, we went out into Bujumbura um, for some food. And then Donna and Murungwa suggested that we have a trip around uh, the zoo before we went home. Um, I'm walking in. I think it's fair to say that Burundi might have slightly different regulations around animal care um, and around visitor safety, in fact. Um, so one of the first things that we saw as we walked in, apart from the staff encouraging everybody to sit on the back of a huge crocodile, um, was a leopard in a cage, a barred cage, about a third of the size of this room. Nothing else in the cage apart from this leopard. Um, and as we walked on around the zoo, I was just left with this image of this majestic, glorious, powerful, wild creature 
caged in a small, dusty, barred box so that it looked utterly tame. Um, but you knew that if you opened the door of that cage, if you gave that leopard just a, an opportunity, a single opportunity, it would not hesitate to stretch its legs and to show off its power, whether by escaping or by mauling all of us who were there. Um, but if I can say for a minute, I wonder if sometimes it feels a little bit like the Holy Spirit, the majestic, glorious, powerful, wild spirit of God has been caged, tamed, whether by our expectations, by our sleepiness and our lethargy, by our lack of desire, our busyness, whatever it might be. And yet, I also know that if we were just to open that metaphorical cage, if we were just to give the spirit an opportunity, he would not hesitate to stretch his legs and to show his power. And I know that we can't cage God is a metaphor. I know we can't cage God. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, the spirit of God blows where he wishes. But hopefully, uh, hopefully you are resonating with what I'm saying. My desire for us is that we'll be a people who are hungry for God. A people like Joshua at the tent of meeting in Exodus who linger in God's presence. My desire is that the Spirit would be free in this room to encounter us, to show his power. So I just want to take a moment just to invite the Holy Spirit. If you want more of... Can I just invite us all to stand? If you want more of God in your life, if you want more of his presence, if you want to encounter him afresh, if you want to learn to be like Joshua and to linger in his presence. Can I just invite you just to come to the front of the room as a way of responding? And as we always say, there's nothing magical about the front. There's nothing special about us here. God is not more present in this part of the room than he is at the back of the room. But as I hinted at earlier, sometimes I think the way that we physically respond helps us respond inwardly. And the front of the room is as good a place as any. So can I just, if you want more of God in your life, if you want to be filled with the Spirit afresh this morning, if you want to give him an opportunity to show his power in your life, can I just invite you to come to the front right now, just as a way of response.